Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. At the end of the final rehearsal for this program, I turned to the orchestra and I said, half-jokingly, that is the most wonderful all-Baroque concert I've ever had the pleasure of conducting. In fact, this program that we're about to play for you is not all-Baroque. It features two great Baroque masterpieces by Bach and Corelli, but it also has two works that uh, come from the 20th and the 21st century and that in certain ways are both homages to the era of Baroque music, to that great era of Bach and Corelli and Handel and Vivaldi, but at the same time are very much creatures of their own time. Stravinsky's Pulcinella Suite and Michael Torkey's brand new cello concerto, Winter's Tale, which receives its world premiere on these concerts. Our program began with one of my absolute favorite Baroque masterpieces from what we call the High Baroque or the Late Baroque. It's by none other than Johann Sebastian Bach, and it's his orchestral suite number one. As you probably remember, Bach wrote a series of four orchestral suites, and they're particularly noteworthy because, in truth, although Bach wrote an unbelievably vast amount of music and particularly orchestral music, uh, most of it was for uh, liturgical purposes and was in church-related works, cantatas and masses and such. And uh, Bach very seldom wrote purely orchestral works. Uh, perhaps the most famous of those orchestral works are, of course, the six Brandenburg Concerti, uh, which he wrote probably over a period of a number of years for a number of different configurations of soloists. And the other set of great orchestral pieces are these four orchestral suites. As with much of Bach's music, it's not entirely known for what purpose he wrote these works, but it's widely considered that he wrote them during the five years he spent in the town of Cothen, working for the prince there, Prince Leopold of Cothen. Prince Leopold was a rather devout Calvinist, and I guess being a Calvinist, uh, they sort of frowned on lots of music in church. Uh, so strangely, for these five years, unlike the, net, the last many years of Bach's life when he was the cantor at the Thomaskirche, the St. Thomas Church in Leipzig, and wrote the most glorious church music perhaps of all time, during these five years, uh, Bach wrote a, a great deal more uh, non-liturgical music, music just for secular reasons and secular purposes, and had a great ensemble of musicians around him. And so it's thought that these four orchestral suites uh, were written during this period. A suite, of course, uh, is a collection usually of dances, uh, very popular in the Baroque period. And Bach wrote uh, different kinds of suites, perhaps the most famous among them, the, the cello suites, the six suites he wrote for solo cello, unaccompanied. Uh, and these four orchestral suites occupy similar kind of shape and form. They consist of an overture, a, a rather big first movement, with a glorious, very broad and brilliant introduction, followed by a very complicated and wonderful fugue, a fugue being 
being a form most popular in the Baroque period. Is the subject of this magnificent overture. It's followed by, I think, six or seven dances, a courant, a running dance, a pair of gavats, a forlen, which is a sort of lively uh, Venetian boat song, uh, some minuets, bourrées, and passepieds. This is a very uh, impressive piece, partly because it's in this brilliant, bright key of C major, but also uh, what I find so striking about it, and uh, one of the things that I, I marvel at it every time I, I work on the piece or listen to the piece or, or study the piece, is that Bach makes the most incredible orchestral colors, creating an unbelievably sumptuous, big, rich, full sound, using simply a, a string orchestra, two oboes, a bassoon, and a, a harpsichordist. Uh, and yet the sonorities of these two oboes and the bassoon uh, are just unbelievably glorious. At the same time, Bach uses these instruments, the wind instruments, quite liberally. They play, play essentially throughout the entire 23-minute work, almost without ever having a chance to take a breath. So in performance, we often stagger and vary the different movements uh, if there's a repeat, as there often are in these dance forms. Uh, in one version, we'll have just the strings play it, and then, the, then in the return, just the winds will play it, or we'll have just the winds play it, and then in the return, everybody will play it. So we create some variety while at the same time giving the incredible wind players uh, a little bit of much-needed rest. Also, something to be very much aware of is that, as in all Baroque music, uh, the way the music is constructed is that there are uh, the there's the larger body of instruments, but then there are also there's also what's called the uh, the continuo group. The continuo essentially handles the bass line, and it uh, it features a solo cello, the harpsichord, the keyboardist, and the bassoonist, and they are always one unit essentially playing the bass and anchoring the entire piece. So here now, this magnificent opening work on our program, it's Johann Sebastian Bach's Orchestral Suite Number no. 1 in C major, played by the musicians of the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was the first work on our program, Bach's Orchestral Suite Number no. 1 in C, played by the members of the Albany Symphony. Next on our program, a very exciting new work that the Albany Symphony and I commissioned and actually recorded just following this performance, a new cello concerto or, or work for cello and orchestra by the great American composer Michael Torkey. It's called Winter's Tale for Cello and Orchestra. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I approached Michael, who's a, an old friend of mine and someone whose music I've performed all through my career. We're, we're virtually the same age. I think he also was born the same year I was in 1961, and I premiered his second uh, orchestral piece. Uh, he was a very precocious kid. He went to, he went to Yale Graduate School uh, after having gone to Eastman for a year, and then after a year dropped out uh, because he was so busy having performances all over the world. He'd written a first orchestral piece called Ecstatic Orange, which was played a great deal and turned into a ballet by Peter Martins at the New York City Ballet. And and I was then conducting uh, a wonderful youth orchestra in New York City, the New York Youth Symphony. And I had a, a commissioning series for young composers. And I commissioned Michael the second year that I had this series to write a piece called Bright Blue Music, which actually turned out to be one of the most successful pieces uh, I ever commissioned in that has gotten sort of countless plays since and is still very much in the American repertoire. Very colorful, beautiful piece. Uh, Michael gained a great deal of fame 
partially because, as a very young man, partially because uh, he was taken up by a number of, of ballet uh, choreographers, most notably Peter Martins at the City Ballet, but also because he has this unusual condition called kinesthesia, where he associates uh, different keys in music with different colors, very, very brilliantly, very brightly. Uh, so D major is blue to him, and various different keys are red or green. And so as a young man, he wrote these this series of wonderful post minimalist pieces, which virtually all ended up becoming uh, dances in the repertoire of the City Ballet and other companies, inspired by the connection he heard between colors and sounds. Uh, he, he has had a, a wonderful career, and now that he and I are both in middle age, I wanted to uh, challenge him to do something a little bit new. He's written just a few works for solo instrument and orchestra in his career. Uh, he wrote a saxophone concerto that we actually premiered and recorded probably 15 or 17 years ago. And uh, he has tried writing piano concertos, but has never felt that any of them were quite successful enough in his estimation. Uh, but other than that, he's really written virtually no other works for solo instrument and orchestra. And I thought and continue to think that he would write wonderful concertos. So I asked him uh, whether he would consider writing a work for cello and orchestra, cello being one of my favorite instruments. And he leapt at the idea. He thought it was a great idea. And at the time we discussed it, he was uh, working on a ballet based on Shakespeare's uh, play, The Winter's Tale. And he had a lot of material and uh, from that play. And he very much thought he could fashion that into a, a concerto. So uh, since our our subscription renewal brochure was due. This is now a year plus ago. Uh, I said, I really need a title if you can come up with one. He said, well, I'm going to base it on The Winter's Tale, so just call it The Winter's Tale, which I did, and I was delighted to do that. And then he called me back about four or five months later and said, you know, it's not really about The Winter's Tale anymore. I didn't use those sketches anyway. I had a whole bunch of different ideas, and I thought they would be stronger. So I don't know if you want to change the title or what. And I said, well, does it still have any connection to Winter's Tale? He said, oh, yeah, it's still the feeling of it and the inspiration of it came from the Winter's Tale, but I'm just not using material that I had had from that. I said, well, why don't you just continue to call it the Winter's Tale? And he said, well, maybe I'll call it a Winter's Tale because the Shakespeare play is the Winter's Tale. And I said, well, maybe just call it Winter's Tale. And that way, future generations of scholars can ponder whether it's based on Shakespeare, whether it's the Winter's Tale, a Winter's Tale. And in fact, that's what he did. So the score now reads Winter's Tale for cello and orchestra. So it's not quite a concerto in the traditional sense in that the cello is, is very prominent throughout and plays a very much leading role and balances the orchestra. But it's not one of these traditional romantic style concertos where the cello plays and then the orchestra plays and the cello plays and the orchestra plays. It's really much more as one might expect from Michael, uh, who's a more uh, post-minimalist kind of composer in that he loves those steady-state textures of the great minimalist composers of, uh, you know, Steve Reich and Philip Glass and John Adams and so. And yet he's gone beyond that, but he still loves to have these kind of very continuous textures, which to me uh, sound very similar to, to the, the continuous textures of Baroque music. If you think back to the best Baroque composers, to Vivaldi and Bach and such, you know, their music sort of has a continuous steady-state sense often that uh, more romantic 19th century Western music does not with much more uh, that that music has much more contrast. If you think of Beethoven or or the great Romantic composers of the High Romantic period, their music kind of goes between different poles, whereas the Baroque uh, aesthetic tends to very often occupy one aesthetic idea at a time. So this piece not only seems somehow uh, Baroque to me, but really goes wonderfully with these actual Baroque pieces that are surrounding it on the program.
The piece is in five movements. It's this kind of arch form where the, the middle movement, the third movement, is a, a beautiful, slow, a very expressive movement. And flanking it are two somewhat more brief and kind of medium tempo movements, each of which is called Perdita's Flowers. Perdita's Flowers one, Perdita's Flowers two. Perdita, of course, a, an important figure in Shakespeare's play. Then the first movement is a kind of lively, fast movement. And the last movement is a very exciting, lively, fast movement. So you've got fast movements flanking the piece on the outside. Side, two beautiful kind of middle middle uh, tempo movements and a, a gorgeous slow movement. Interestingly, Michael chose to use exceedingly similar materials in each of the movements. It was almost like a challenge he set for himself. So you'll hear that in every movement, there's this kind of stated, almost like a little fanfare, two-bar Ba ba bum, ba ba bum, something like that that starts the movement, and then the the cello tends to often be accompanied by the winds uh, playing rather this kind of rather lively, fast music, and the strings uh, start by playing harmonies, just harmonies underneath it. And Michael even told me that in creating the piece, he started with the cello part and these wind uh, supporting lines that all kind of run rather quickly along with each other, and then he sat down and put you know what he thought were very beautiful harmonies under it. And what's fascinating about the piece is that in each movement, the same processes tend to occur where the accompaniment, the, the harmonies, end up becoming kind of more lyrical melodies. He takes the top notes of these harmonies and connects them, and they come out as these slow, beautiful, evolving melodic materials. So he now has two different kinds of very contrasting material. He has the sort of fast, uh, jumpy kind of music that the cello often plays with the winds and the, and the brass, the, the light brass instruments. And then he also has these beautiful, uh, slower melodies that kind of emerge from the strings and are often taken up by the cello. So the orchestra and I and the audience, we felt it was just a fantastically charming and winning kind of piece, just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, it was played by us with a, a remarkable young cellist, Julie Albers, who's been uh, a guest with us once before and has now recently been named the principal cellist of the great St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. And she is just a phenomenal, incredibly... Um, rock-solid virtuoso. The cello part is extremely difficult and often plays way up high on the A string, the highest string, and yet she was just absolutely perfect throughout. So here, a, a great treat for everyone, a brand new piece by Michael Torkey, a work for cello and orchestra called Winter's Tale in its world premiere, featuring the cellist Julie Albers, backed up by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. We began the second half of our program with another great Baroque masterpiece, uh, this from an earlier era than Bach's era. If Bach was what was considered the high late Baroque, he and Handel really occupied that very important period in the first half of the 18th century. Bach's dates uh, went from 1685 to 1750. Uh, if Bach was the late Baroque, I suppose you'd have to call Archangelo Corelli the, the high middle Baroque, uh, a generation or even two generations before Bach, although their lives overlap. He was born in 1653 and lived to 1713. Uh, and he was, by all reports, an amazing violinist and composer for string instruments. And most of his works, or all of his works, tend to be for string instruments and for string orchestra. And he was really a great pioneer in those very first string orchestra pieces, so-called concerto grossi, or concerto grossos, uh, which are essentially um, works for solo string instruments— 
backed by uh, a larger string body, which was the way these early concerted works functioned. So you'd have, uh, in this case, uh, the soloists, the two solo violins, and then you'd have uh, the full string orchestra behind them, uh, and you'd have either a, a harpsichord or a, a, an organ playing continuo, playing the bass line with the, the solo cello. So uh, this is probably uh, Corelli's most famous work. It's his eighth concerto grosso from Opus 6, uh, Opus 6 was a series of 12 of these wonderful pieces, and the eighth is the most famous, I think largely not only because it's a great piece, but also because it's called the Christmas Concerto because Corelli specified that it was to be played on the eve of Christmas. And so it's come down to us as the Christmas Concerto, uh, although it doesn't have any ostensibly Christmas-related material. It having been played on Christmas Eve or perhaps Christmas night, uh, we elected to use uh, organ instead of instead of harpsichord. So you'll hear that the background keyboard instrument is not a harpsichord. It's a much mellower, beautiful sound of the organ. Uh, and the piece, as I mentioned, features our two brilliant uh, solo violinists. They're our concertmaster, Jill Levy, and our assistant principal second violinist playing principal on this concert, Mitsuko Suzuki. Our principal cellist, Susan Libby, has a very prominent role in leading the continuo along with the great uh, organist, uh, harpsichordist, and keyboard player, Greg Hayes. So here it is. Uh, again, it's a, a suite of uh, six movements, and it ends with a, a wonderful pastoral, which I guess had something to do with with the shepherds and, and Jesus and all that, perhaps, uh, but a very vital, lively, exciting kind of great, crisp string music that Corelli was so famous for. It's his Concerto Grosso in G minor, opus six, number eight, the so-called Christmas Concerto, played by the Albany Symphony. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. That was Corelli's Concerto Grosso in G Minor, Opus 6, Number 8, the Christmas Concerto, performed by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. The final work on our program was another of these uh, pseudo or neo-Baroque works, uh, very much inspired by great Baroque music, but it's uh, by none other than the most amazing of all 20th century composers, Igor Stravinsky. Stravinsky, as you probably remembered, uh, burst on the international scene as a very young man in 1910 uh, with three astounding ballets, sort of boom, 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 one after another. First, The Firebird, uh, then uh, Petrushka, and then The Rite of Spring. And by the time The Rite of Spring uh, had been premiered in 1913, Stravinsky was probably the most famous composer in the world because the first performance of The Rite of Spring had been such a scandal. Uh, these works, particularly The Rite of Spring, were viewed as unbelievably modern. And yet, when we listen to them from the distance of history uh, of 100 years or so, what's striking is not just how modern they must have sounded in, in those years between 1910 and 1913, but we begin to hear much more of Stravinsky's antecedents. It's true that on one hand, he was uh, sort of expanding the possibilities of the orchestra and using new rhythmic structures that had never been heard before. But at the same time, his music at, at that early time owed an incredible debt to his teacher and mentor, the great Russian composer Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, who'd been not only his 
his teacher, but almost like a father figure to Stravinsky. Stravinsky had been a close friend of Rimsky-Korsakov's son. Uh, Rimsky-Korsakov was already the, the great man of Russian music when Stravinsky studied with him, and, and Rimsky-Korsakov took a great interest in Stravinsky and his music. And when we hear those early ballets now, it's amazing how close their language is to the operas, uh, the very um, kind of exotic and fantastical operas that Rimsky-Korsakov wrote late in his life. Well, as Stravinsky evolved, and I always compare him to Picasso in that each of them, you know, sort of dominated the 20th century in their art form and went through such incredible different periods and styles and yet always maintained their own very unique identities. So we always know when we see a Picasso pretty much and we always know when we hear Stravinsky pretty much. Uh, Stravinsky sort of had to evolve what his next stylistic forays would be. And uh, around 1917 or 18, uh, the impresario Sergei Diaghilev, who had commissioned those three ballets and premiered them and who was kind of the the sort of leading aesthetic thinker in Stravinsky's life and in Europe at the time, gave Stravinsky a volume of unknown, basically unknown Baroque keyboard pieces ostensibly by the slightly known composer Pergolesi. Pergolesi had one very famous opera, uh, La Serva Padrona, that uh, still gets played occasionally, but otherwise is largely forgotten. And uh, it turns out actually that that this volume of, of works wasn't just keyboard works and it wasn't all by Pergolesi. In fact, a lot of it was by other unknown or little-known composers. And Stravinsky at first was very resistant. He didn't want to write a piece inspired by these works, which Diaghilev was suggesting he do. Uh, but then he sat down and started playing them and he, as he described it, fell in love with them. And so he decided to write, in fact, uh, what Diaghilev was hoping he would write, a sort of pastiche ballet uh, using these materials, but reworking them, taking, keeping the melodies and the bass lines, but reinterpreting the harmonies, reorchestrating them, obviously, for a more modern ensemble, and really Stravinskyizing them while maintaining something of their, of their original forms. And so he created this wonderful 40-minute ballet, Pulcinella. And it was a, a fascinating work and a beautiful work and actually featured three singers. Uh, but then the, the work was so successful that Stravinsky ended up making a suite, uh, a shorter work for orchestral performance of about 23 minutes of the 38-minute ballet. Uh, and that's the work that we all know and love today, the Pulcinella Suite. And it's a, it's an amazingly fresh, exciting thing. Just an, another word about the, the, the ballet – Diaghilev, as always, put together a dream team. That was part of the reason Stravinsky was willing and eager to, to proceed with the creation of this of this interesting neo-baroque pastiche ballet. Um, the the great choreographer Massin was uh, doing the choreography, and at that time, little-known Spanish painter named Pablo Picasso was doing the sets. And uh, Stravinsky and Picasso were great friends. They were living in Paris at the same time and uh, sharing ideas. And uh, so Stravinsky was very excited to work with Picasso. Uh, Later on, at the end of Stravinsky's life, he, he lamented uh, in writing how uh, badly Diaghilev treated Picasso. He would take his sketches and throw them on the floor and stamp on them and said, this isn't what I had in mind at all. And uh, he wanted a really sort of drawing room 17th century uh, sort of uh, period piece. And Picasso was trying to do something a little bit more modern and up to date. Ultimately, I guess the backdrops were beautiful. It was done at the Paris Opera and Stravinsky lamented that the backdrops were, were neglected and ultimately lost, these magnificent, gigantic theatrical backdrops of Picasso's. But uh, the work came out great. Uh, it was a big success and it actually um, brought about the next very important stylistic period in Stravinsky's oeuvre, in his, in his life, in his work, uh, this so-called neoclassical or neo-baroque uh, period that evolved in the 1920s 
out of this work, Pulcinella, and this encounter with these little-known Baroque composers and other encounters with Baroque music that he had. Uh, so it's a fascinating piece in his world. Uh, it's also just one of the most fresh, exciting, beautiful pieces. Every inch of it is Stravinsky, but at the same time, it's this wonderful homage to the beautiful period of the Baroque. So here it is now to close our program, Igor Stravinsky's Pulcinella Suite. Uh, the orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.